we're going to dive in here. We're back in the book of James. Before we begin, you know, just a few things here that I came across this week. It, what should have been a thing to rejoice over and celebrate many years ago um, caused a tremendous uproar about a book that was printed in 1631. Not just any book, it was a Bible. It was dubbed the Blasphemous Bible by those that found the error. It, was, it is not known whether the mistake was a genuine error by the publishers Robert Barker and Martin Lucas, the, the royal printers, or perhaps an act of sabotage by a rival. Either way, it was a tremendous uproar by Britain when the grave blunder was, was discovered a whole year later and after a thousand copies came off the press. What was the error? One word was missing from the book of Exodus. One word. The seventh commandment is missing the word not. Instead stating, thou shalt commit adultery. <laughs> One word. A crucial word. King Charles was furious when he found out and ordered the blasphemous Bibles to be withdrawn and burned. And yet a few escaped and have been auctioned off in the past few years, in fact. King Charles then stripped Barker and Lucas of their printing license and fined them 300 pounds, the equivalent of around $50,000 today, so pretty steep. All because of one word. Words are important. Words are significant. Words have power. They, they shape things. They reveal things. Our words reveal to others what is going on inside of our hearts and minds. Words can be the clearest examples of a changed life for some, but for others can show the battle is still waging for their soul. But we need to be clear this morning, words are important. You might have heard this growing up, sticks and stones may break your bones, but that was really weird up here. Words were never, never hurt you or however you remember it, but that's not true. Because you can sit here this morning and reflect back on your life and remember clearly all the words that were spoken to you that brought trauma. Words are powerful. We fight for our words. We do it in America, and I, and I think we're right to. Freedom of speech, the freedom to speak what we believe. But that doesn't mean that we're free to say whatever just pops into our mind. No, as believers, as Christians, we are held to a higher standard. And so I ask, my friends, how do you view your words? Some feel it is their duty to be honest with everything that pops into their mind. So they just spew forth through their mouth what comes into their mind. You want me to be honest, right? They say. But they hurt others with their words. They can be coarse and cruel, and they bring trauma and pain with their words. I can think back of words spoken to myself and my wife during some of the most difficult times in our lives, words that the speaker just needed to say, but they cut deeply. There are words that have, we have forgiven of, but still linger in our minds. Perhaps you have the same in your life. You know, the end of the year brings to our attention a tendency to, to reflect and to review what just transpired, what the year was just like. And so I ask, how were your words in 2018? Were your words there to build up and strengthen 
or were your words there to destroy, to bring down, to lower people? Maybe reflecting on the year is too much, so let's narrow it down. How were your words this past week? If we were to pause for a moment and turn my mic off and run through the speaker system your conversations with your family and friends and coworkers, would you be proud of what we would hear? How would it make you feel? Are there words, any words that you have spoken this week that you wish you could have taken back? Oh, I wish I hadn't said that. We need to understand that our words matter. Our words affect people. And this morning, as we come back to the book of James, we're going to look at the longest section of the Bible that clearly and directly talks about our tongue, our speech. And this is needed for us as we begin this new year. You know, when you you go to the doctor's office, one of those things that the doctor most regularly asks, right, is to stick out your tongue. (laughs) A doctor can learn a lot just by looking at the tongue. I think James is right. We can learn a lot this morning just by looking at our tongue. And a good doctor doesn't tell you what you want to hear. You don't go back to that doctor that just wants to say all the things you want to hear. No, a good doctor tells you what you need to hear. And our doctor this morning is the Holy Spirit coming through James, the half-brother of Jesus. And he's going to tell us what we need to hear. So if you haven't already, turn to James chapter 3. If you're using one of the Bibles in the, in the chairs, it's on page 951. So follow with me as I read either in your Bible, your broad or one there. And we're looking at James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. James begins, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also. Though though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is God's word. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we we thank you again for the opportunity that we have to come and gather together as the body of Christ. And I pray for your people here this morning as they sit under the preaching of your word, that you would speak to them, that you would help them understand, that you would bring comfort to those that are needed and conviction to those that need it. And God, I pray that you would 
Help us to understand your word. Help us to apply it to our life. Help us to not uh, grow angry at the hearing of your word, but to be slow to, to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger. God, I pray that we would be receptive to what you have for us. We pray this all for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you came in this morning, you received a bulletin and an insert there and the outline is stated. And so there's three things we're going to walk through. And the first is the power of the tongue, verses 1 through 5. And we've been away from the book of James for a number of weeks. And we come back to the book and we want to remind you again, it's a book about faith. This book unpacks what our faith would look like as we follow God. It shows us how far we are to, to follow God and our obedience to him. It shows us even big holes in our walk with the Lord. And James is writing this letter to this church that's dispersed, a church that is suffering, a church that has been sinned against by, by one another, been sinned against by, by rich people and people in power, and then even, in some ways, in chapter 3, leaders who have sinned against the church with their tongue, who've been careless with their words. And James has already set the stage for, for words in the, in the in the necessity to understand our speech in chapter 1, verse 26, where he says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And he calls out there us and, and those that he's talking to, and then he continues on in chapter 3, that our religion is not worth anything in God's eyes if we're careless with our speech. And the first group of people that he singles out here in chapter 3 is teachers. He singles out himself and others who hold the office of teachers. This is the primary office of a, of a pastor or elder for the church since its office has that distinction, being able to teach as we read in 1 Timothy 3. And he is rightly warning every man who thinks they're ready to be a teacher in God's church to count the cost, to consider themselves and, and their teaching. He says there in verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. We will all stand in judgment before God, but those of us that teach God's word will stand before him in judgment with, for our words that we teach others. With a greater strictness, he says. Every time I approach the pulpit to preach God's words, there lies a stricter judgment for me. I will give an account for every word spoken from this place as a teacher of God's word. Hebrews 13, 17 is etched in my mind as a pastor. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. There are two people in that verse. The church, the people, and the pastor, the leaders. The church has a responsibility to submit to the leaders that God has gifted to the church. And he says you should do it in a way that's, that's done joyfully and happily, not begrudgingly. Why? Because God has placed elders and pastors in that position to watch over your soul. And their joy is an advantage to you. Now the question is, when you look at that verse, and I won't go to a long rabbit trail, but which leaders should you submit to? Is it every church you have ever visited? Is it every pastor in the greater Tacoma area? Who are you to submit to if you're to be obedient to that verse? You have to answer that question. And may I put forward to you, it should be the leaders that you've committed with, those leaders that you've membered with. And this verse is also etched into my mind because I will give an account as 
pastor in a leadership position at Edgewood Bible. This isn't a, a throwaway job. I will answer for this. And James's point is, as preacher and teacher, I will answer for every word that I speak here in this role. John MacArthur, speaking of this, says, James's point is that no believer should begin any form of teaching God's word without a deep sense of seriousness of this responsibility. To sin with the tongue when alone or with one or two other persons is bad enough. But to sin with a tongue in public, especially while acting as a speaker for God, is immeasurably worse. Speaking for God carries with a great implications both for good and ill. And because of the seriousness of the position of teacher in God's church, we're going to be careful for those that we place, those men that we place in leadership and teaching positions. Paul urged Timothy not to be hasty to, to lay on hands of those that are new elders and pastors. Why? Because the more words you speak as a teacher, the more judgment. Your words count. Your words have consequences. So as God gifts our church with new men to serve as elders and pastors, we will carefully and cautiously seek to place them in that role. And sometimes, sometimes we have to do the hard job of telling a man that perhaps he shouldn't be a pastor or an elder. Charles Spurgeon was well-known for training young men for ministry. And if you've read Charles Spurgeon at all, he's well-known for being very blunt. And one of these quotes here, he's talking about men as he's training for ministry, and he says this, whatever you may know, you cannot be truly efficient ministers if you're not apt to teach. You know ministers who have mistaken their calling and evidently have no gifts for it. Make sure that none think the same of you. There are brethren in the ministry whose speech is intolerable. Either they rouse you to wrath or else they send you to sleep. No human being, unless gifted with infinite patience, could long endure to listen to them. And nature does well to give the victim deliverance through sleep. I heard one say the other day that a certain preacher had no more gifts for the ministry than an oyster. And in my own judgment, that was slander on the oyster. For that worthy bivalve shows great discretion in his openings and knows when to close. If some men were sentenced to hear their own sermons, it would be a righteous judgment upon them. And they would soon cry out with Cain, my punishment is greater than I can bear. He's blunt. Some of the most difficult conversations is with a man desiring to be in ministry. And they've seen it work. They've been a part of a church and they love it. The church is growing. The word is preached and they want that. They want to do that full time. And they believe they're called. But no one on the outside has verified their calling. They haven't talked to anyone. It's all internal. And our jobs as pastors and elders is to discern the call of God in their life. Don't make a mistake. No man will be perfect as James says here in verse 2. But the pastor teacher must recognize the seriousness of the call to preach God's word to God's people. Just pause for a moment and think of the fruit from bad preachers. I don't mean bad like they're boring or unable to hold attention like Spurgeon says. I mean bad like they're heretical. You've heard them. There are many that are very well known in our country today. And this is serious here, what James is saying. And if you don't believe me, if you don't think it maybe has a strong effect on the church, you should visit Europe. 
I have stepped foot in no less than 20 churches throughout Europe that are now empty. Big, beautiful architecture that once were alive and now are dead. You can, in fact, go to these churches and pay a few dollars to tour the church. That's how they keep the lights on. There's no life inside. Church bodies, those church families were set on fire from hell and burned down to ashes by men preaching. Not the word. Those buildings lie vacant now. Why? Because at some point, the person who stepped behind the pulpit failed to believe that their words mattered. They preached something other than God's word. They moved away from true sound teaching and decided to tickle the ears. They destroyed the church. They never realized that their tongues were full of restless evil and they spouted off on false doctrine. And now those churches lie in ruins of a time now gone. That's why a good gospel church is like an oasis in a desert. It's not because of the preacher, it's because of the word. The word brings refreshment, it brings hope, it brings peace and comfort. That is what should be preached from this pulpit here every week. Teachers should consider this every time we stand before God's people to proclaim. We should recognize that our words matter, that the gospel matters. And I just want to pause for a moment and thank you. Thank you, church family, for your continued kindness to me. This week, you allowed me to spend 25 hours to prepare this sermon to preach to you. That's kindness. Thank you. I don't have to preach, I get to preach. And I want to thank you for your graciousness, for allowing me to do this. Thank you for your attentiveness to sit and hear God's word preached, even when it cuts deep. God is continuing to work on us. And James, just to make sure we understand the power of the tongue, James continues on here into verse 3 of some visual aids for us. He says in verse 3, if we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And what he's saying here is the the tongue, very small, packs a huge punch. Can you appreciate the, the power of the tongue? bits in horses' mouths. That's, that's kind of important when you ride a hot horse. I've only done it once, and I won't do it again. But it was kind of important to direct that horse where it should go. And a, a rudder and under a ship. Rudders are small. One of the, the biggest ships in the world is the U.S. aircraft carrier USSS Eisenhower. It weighs over 91,000 tons and is nearly 1,100 feet in length and has a nuclear-powered 280,000-horsepower engine a staff of 6,100 men and women, and carries nearly 100 aircrafts. The area on the flight deck is four and a half acres. It's huge. It's literally a floating city. It would take you hours to cover this ship by foot. And in its massive weight and personnel and hardware, it's steered by a rudder that's 29 feet long. This incredibly large ship is steered by something very, very small. And James is saying this is our tongue. Our tongue can steer our lives in directions that maybe we don't want to go. 
And that's James' point here. You see, friends, words are not a right. Words are a responsibility. Words are an opportunity to show others who God is, what he has done, how he is faithful. And with our words, we are either displaying our creator, our Lord, our God, or we're displaying the serpent. We display Satan. Our words either build up and give life, or our words tear down and destroy. Our words are important. There's power in our words. Well, James continues the analogy, and he'll take it to a second point this morning. Secondly, the danger of the tongue. You know, the Bible talks a lot about our mouth and, and our speech. And I want you to turn back with me to the book of Proverbs. It's in the middle of your Bible there. Book of Proverbs. I'm going to read out just a few Proverbs here that, that talk about the tongue and our speech. Look at Proverbs chapter 10 first. Proverbs 10, and, and look at verse 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Turn over to chapter 13, verse 3. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. And turn to chapter 15. There's a few here. Verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Verse 2, the tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. Look at verse 4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness, and it breaks the spirit. Look at verse 7, the lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the hearts of fools. Jump down to verse 23. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is. Then look at verse 28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. There's many more in, in Proverbs. And in fact, if you're sitting here this morning, like I was this week, and you realize maybe you have an issue with your tongue, it would be wise for you to, to read a proverb a day. You know, there's 31 of them. And maybe for the next month, take a proverb every day and highlight and underline, underline every verse that talks about the speech. And there's a lot there. And then I would encourage you to go back after you've read that and underlined or highlighted those verses and pray every one of those verses and ask God for help. And if you look at verses uh, Proverbs 15, 1 and 2, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. God, help me to have soft answers and then fill in the blank of situations in your life. God, help me not to be harsh with those in this situation. Praying God's word. It, it would bless you. I'm, I'm positive it will help you in, in your walk with the Lord with your speech. But come back to me, uh, to James here as we come back to, to chapter 3, because there's more here about the danger that, that James shares with us of the tongue. Because James says in verse 6, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set on, among its members, staining the whole body, set on fire for the entire course of life, and then set on fire by hell. 
fire, unrighteousness, hell, restless evil, he says, deadly poison in verse 8. All of these are descriptions for the tongue. In Scripture, the tongue is also seen as wicked and deceitful and perverse and filthy and corrupt and flattering and slanderous and gossiping and blasphemous and foolish and boasting and complaining and cursing and contentious and sensual and vile. And that's not an exhaustive list. It's no wonder that God put the tongue in a cage behind teeth. And James is launching into a set of descriptions of the tongue that are severe. Since the tongue is, is, is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. John Calvin said of this, a tiny part of our anatomy has all the evil of the world within its touch. All those things that you despise in this world, all those sinful things you, you can hear at work or on TV, your very own tongue has the same potential. And what one spark from your mouth can set everything on fire. And we should know about this living on the West Coast, right? What happens the last few summers, every summer, it seems a forest fire. Something's happening in the West, and we have all of this smoke that comes up. There should be reminders yet again of what the picture that James is painting for us. One tiny spark is sufficient to set a whole forest ablaze. Stately oaks and majestic cedars and tall pine trees are reduced to, to little stumps of blackened wood in a matter of hours. And all of that's usually traced back to human carelessness or neglect. And we tend to think it's out there. It's something out there. But James brings the illustration right home to where we live. It says, the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and then set on fire by hell. The whole body, whether that's your own life because of your foolish speech, or perhaps he's talking about the church. The church body, ruined by the speech of one, the tongue can stain us. You hate stains, for those of you that do laundry. You hate stains when you find that out. You get a new piece of clothing, looking forward to having it and wearing it, and you get a stain on it. It's defiled. It's maddening. Your tongue has that power over your life to stain things, to ruin things. Not just in your life, but the life of the church. Jesus said in Mark 7, Verse 20 through 23, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. From, for from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And an evil tongue comes from a heart that is unchecked and it stains you, it defiles you. And he says also it, it sets your life on fire. And James is now depicting the tongue's wickedness as a blaze spreading through the time span of one's life. And this is very serious because it's not just the time of, of our life, of just us, but the direction of our life. And it affects others. James talks about this with a phrase in the Greek that is unique to all the biblical literature. It's a literal meaning would be a wheel of existence or a, a wheel of human origin. One commentator said, the wheel of life is a figure of speech for the cycle of your existence in its unbroken entirety. The tongue that sets on fire the wheel of life. It means that it's an unrestrained tongue destroys its owner as well as injuring his surrounding world. 
Just picture a wheel set on fire, rolling around in life. That is an uncontrolled tongue. Destroying not only yourself, but those that you come in contact with. Do you believe me? If you don't, turn to Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to turn there regardless if you believe me or not. Galatians chapter 5. Look at verse 13 through 15. Paul, writing this letter to the church in Galatia, says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You might say, yeah, I, I yelled at my husband, but he knows that I love him. Or I was upset and I said unloving things because I'm defending the truth of God's word. But Paul doesn't allow us to water down the impact of our words. Paul says we need to watch out or we'll be consumed or, or better yet, destroyed by one another. And I want you to, to notice that he doesn't say that the relationship would be destroyed. No, he says people will be destroyed. Friends, you can crush the faith of people. You can destroy their hope. You can damage their identity. You can leave a legacy of darkness in the heart of others because of the evil of your communication that marked that relationship. And what you say always produces some kind of harvest. And the question is, what is the lasting legacy of your words? I want you to think back. What have your words been like at the workplace this year, this week? What kind of effect do your words have on your coworkers? And you may say, it's just, it's, it's the secular world, Jeff. You don't understand the pressure and the, and, and the stress that I'm under. Just so you know, you don't check out being a Christian when you go to work. What kind of effect do your words have on your coworkers? Would, would you be able to say with confidence that they see Jesus in the way that you speak to them? Would they be drawn to understand Christianity because of your words at work? I'm going to challenge you to ask your coworkers this week. Seriously, ask them, a coworker, even the one that's an unbeliever. Friend, I was challenged at church by my pastor to consider my words. Do my words at work display to you that I love God and I love others? Ask them, seriously. Ask them. And, and for those of you that sit and say, I, I never have an opportunity to share the gospel with my coworkers, there you go. I just served up a big softball to you. Ask your coworkers. And if they respond and say, yeah, no, your words aren't, aren't that way, then repent in front of them. Repent to them. Ask for, for their goodness. Ask for accountability and share with them the hope that you have as a Christian that God can forgive you and they can work in your life to redeem your words. I mean, what an amazing way to have the gospel shared at work. For those of you at home and your families, how have your words been this week? Would you like a recording played for all to hear this morning? 
have your words been? Are they edifying? Are they building up? Are they bringing honor and glory to God? You know, our words can unleash forces for good and for evil. And we need to ask ourselves before we speak, are we sure we want to say this? Is it true? If so, is it helpful? Is it appropriate? We need to ask ourselves these hard questions. See, James doesn't let us off the hook. He comes back at us here in verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed, has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Who have you killed this week with your words? The man can tame fierce animals, but he cannot tame the tongue. Just in case you think you can somehow muscle through this and accomplish it on your own, James reminds us that you can't. Your tongue is, is full of restless evil, full of deadly poison. So and generally speaking in our world, people are unable to tame their tongues. They need God's help. We need God's help. But this isn't what the world teaches, though. Now, the world teaches that people are basically good, right? Yeah, they do bad things, but they're, they're really good. And James says that's absolutely false. Your tongue by nature is evil. It spews forth evil. All are born rebellious. All are born at enmity with God. You're born into this world in opposition to God. You need help. You need a rescue. You cannot do it on your own. You need someone to come and to rescue you. That's why we celebrate Christmas every year. We celebrate this because God came low, that God came down to rescue us. God sent his son, Jesus, to come down to, to live with us and to die for us. He had no sin in himself, but he died in our place. He took our sins upon himself. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you are seated in a very strange place. You're seated with people who were once like you, but now are made new. We like the idea of newness, don't we? Today is the first Sunday of 2019, a new year. New beginnings, new things, fresh and clean. We like that. And perhaps today, for the first time, you're realizing because of your speech that you need to be made new. And praise God for his amazing work to, to bring here this morning to hear his word. See, God is still in the business of making people new. This is why we're here. I had a kid sit in my office a few weeks ago sharing her testimony because she wanted to be baptized. And with tears streaming down her face, and her parents' face, too, was sharing how God had made her new this year. Oh, on Good Friday, raised in the church by godly, loving parents and siblings, now made new in Jesus. And she's going to be baptized soon. See, friends, that's it. That's, that's why we're here. That's why we do what we do. I'd happily do this until the Jesus takes me home to see more come to Jesus to be made new. There's still yet more. And she has a new heart now, a new nature. 
Her heart of stone, as Ezekiel says, is replaced with a heart of flesh. And this is what happens when you're regenerated. We have a new affection for God, something that wasn't there before. And then a new affection for God, that love for God affects speech with other people. It affects speech about God, about who he is and what he's done. And that newness brings finally a love for God. A love to obey him. And friends, if you're here this morning and you recognize that you're not new, you need to repent of your rebellion to save yourself, to live for yourself, and you need to turn and follow Christ. You need to trust in him alone to save you. He will not only redeem you for eternity, he will redeem your speech. He will give himself, the Holy Spirit, to live inside of you, to help you, so that you could follow him. And if you have more questions about this, we're here. I'll be at the back door after the service, and I'd love to talk to you more about what it means to be a Christian and to follow Christ. I know the other elders would be back there too. We'd love to talk with you. Well, friends, we've seen the power and the danger of the tongue. The last is the abuse from the tongue. James challenges us again to consider the effects of our tongues on others. He says, in verse 9, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. See, our, our speech comes from somewhere. You realize that, don't you? It, it comes from somewhere. Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verse 43, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces the good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Our words come from somewhere. And Jesus is teaching us this morning that our word problems, our speech problems, are essentially heart problems. Most of our issues in life, your struggles in your marriage, your issues with your kids, your problems at work, come back to the heart. And when those heart spill out, it usually comes through the tongue. And, and Jesus is teaching us this morning that all the problems that we have in our life aren't always out there, it's in here. They reside inside of us. We need to realize that my greatest problem is me. Have you ever said to someone, oh, whoops, I didn't mean to say that? The more biblical thing is to say, please forgive me for saying what I meant to. Because if it had not been in your heart, it wouldn't have come out of your mouth. The sin in my heart does something terrible to me. Sin turns me in on myself. Sin shrinks my life to just the size of me. Sin makes me obsessed with my wants and my needs and my feelings. And sin is fundamentally about me. What can you do for me? Because sin causes me to love me more than anyone else. 
sin causes me to be obsessed with me and with what I want and how I want it and when I want it and why I want it and where I want it and who am I want to deliver it to me. And sin turns us into bottomless pits of demands. I'm a pit of expectancy. I want it now. I have a pit of entitlement. I, I need this. It's mine. I'm a pit of selfishness. Don't you worry about me? Come on, what about me? See, this is sin that dwells, and it still dwells in our flesh. And if we're not careful, if we're not confessing these sins, it will control our heart and will come out of our mouth. How does this play out? I'll give you an illustration from my house. An all-too-typical family scene. It's 10.30 at night, and the kids that I put to bed at 8 p.m., are in their beds playing loudly. And I start up the stairs, and I don't want to, working through in my mind how this is going to play out. And I'm probably not saying, thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity to share the gospel with my kids. God, I love redemption. I love what you're doing through my kids right now. No, instead, I'm saying, they're dead. And I burst into my kid's room and I say, do you know what time it is? Do you have any idea what my day's been like? Do you have any idea what I do? I don't ask for much, just children that are human. I bought you every little thing that you have. I bought those beds, those pajamas. I made your Christmas happy. And as I'm ranting, do you think my kids are saying, my, this is helpful. <laughs> Here's a person of incredible wisdom who loves the Lord, who loves me. I'm so glad he came into my room. I can see my heart finally. <laughs> now, if we examine the emotion that's propelling you at that moment, it's it's not pretty. And we can laugh because we've all been there or we experienced it. We're not angry because our children have broken the laws of God's kingdom. Because if they had, we could have righteous anger that would go in a much different direction. It would be an anger of grace, an anger of wisdom, an anger of instruction and correction. Now we're angry because our children have broken the laws of my kingdom. And in the laws of my kingdom, there is no parenting after 10 p.m. I have to ask, are you being honest about your words? How much of the words that you have shared in similar situations and relationships of your dear life have had anything to do with the kingdom of God? With his rightful and glorifying place. See, our tendency is to be so quick after one kingdom, and it's not usually God's, it's our own. And is it possible from this passage 
is this stuck out to me. Is it possible that we have forgotten who we're talking to, who we're speaking with, that we look directly at people and we forget who they are? James says, with it, our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. James is talking about how we can worship God on Sunday with our words and give praise and glory to him and turn around on Monday and put people down. Those very people that are made in the image of God. And he isn't just talking about Christians here. This is every person on earth. Every human being is made in the image of God. And to curse them is to wish ill upon them, to speak against them, to, to wish harm upon them, to yell at them or, or to gossip about them. Do we think about this when we talk to people? That they are made in the image of God. They're made in the image of God. I want that phrase to ring in our ears every time we speak to another person. They're made in the image of God either face-to-face -face or over the phone with those pesky telemarketers, of which I was one and my wife was, just so you know. Or the Jehovah's Witness that come to your door. Or the person driving carelessly on the road in front of you. Or to the cashier that's slow in front of you at the store. Or to the politician that makes your blood boil. Or to those others you know, the left in the politics realm. They were made in the image of God. Do we realize this? We talk ill of them. We're talking ill of God. You're accusing God of wrongdoing. God, you made them, but you messed up. James says in verse 10, from the same mouth comes blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. These things shouldn't happen. Shouldn't happen in our lives. They shouldn't happen in the church. It cannot happen. This is double-mindedness that James talks about earlier in chapter one. It's not fitting for the Christian life. He says in verse 11, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives and grape vine produce figs? Neither can salt pond yield fresh water. See, what he's saying here is that our words reveal our hearts. If you really want to know someone, you, you talk with them. Ask them what they're really passionate about. See how they treat others with their words. I mean, no one's perfect for sure, but there are many people, when you get to know them and see how they treat others with their tongue, you can know a lot about their heart. Jesus talks about the heart in Matthew 12. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit. The tree is known by its fruit. See, those that have a, a changed heart will display it. Not perfectly, but they'll display it in their words. 
James says it's impossible to expect drinkable water and water that is not drinkable to come from the same source. It's not possible. How do we know an apple tree? It's fruit. Look what comes from it. How do you know a Christian? Look at their fruit. You know, we'll always look pretty. But there should be fruit. Maybe it's slow and small, but there's fruit. Something that can be identified. And if not, there's reason to question if they know the Savior. And what's our responsibility then? Put them down? No. Give them this glorious gospel. That's their hope. To know Jesus, to understand the gospel, and to be saved. I believe we've all been confronted with God's word this morning. And now we have a choice. We can be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, and we can pause and allow God's word to sink deep within us. Or we could fly off the handle and ignore what it says and argue. The question is, what are you going to do? What will your talk be like tonight? What will your words be like tomorrow? Perhaps you feel justified in your speech, and yet you might be blind. Maybe it will be good for you to spend a few moments this afternoon with your spouse or with a close friend or kids, spend time with your parents and ask them. Truly ask them, how am I speaking? Can you see godly fruit in my words. And if not, ask, how can I grow and change and pray for one another? And together as a church family, how are we doing? Are we known as a a church that is gracious in its speech towards one another? Are we kind with our words? Or are we gossips? You know, gossiping is a two-way street. If you're, if you're gossiping, stop. And if you hear gossip, stop them with grace, with love. Spend time thinking and praying through Ephesians 4, 25 through 32, talking about our speech with one another in the church. And I realize, really, as we end here, sometimes it's best, though, to just be silent. I don't think that we're silent enough. Change can come through silence. Some of our issues here this morning and in our lives is that we talk too much. And we need to learn from Jesus to just be silent. And as we transition here to the end and as we partake of communion, I'm gonna ask the men to stand right now and come forward And as they're coming right now, I want you to listen from Isaiah's account. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was silent before those that would kill him. His silence instructs us. He was silent as he stood before those in charge that would kill him, even in Mark's and the Gospels. But listen from Isaiah chapter 53 as I read. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had no, done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be account, accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray before we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to take our sin upon himself. We thank you for completing what was needed for us to be saved. We thank you because of Christ, our speech can be redeemed, can be godly, and can honor and glorify you. Help us to remember and to reflect this morning as we partake together as the body what you have done for us on the cross. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.